engage feedback early, often, consistently, even when you don't run into problems. Um, even I'm bad at that, right? So I think what you have to understand is you're being brought in as a mentor. You're probably somebody facing the most difficult challenges of their life. The stress is high, the existential dread of sort of failure and have paying other people's paychecks and spending other people's money to try to bring something to life. You really have to, if you're going to mentor, you just have to be able to be consistent and be patient that the change takes time. From Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies, it's Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. Today, we sit down with Alex Daly, serial entrepreneur, investor, fintech enthusiast, and self-proclaimed nerd. Welcome. This is Sam Roach-Gerber and Dave Pridebury, recording from the Consolidated Communications Technology Hub in downtown Burlington, Vermont. Hi, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy you're here. And after my intro, you actually told us you don't consider yourself an entrepreneur. Tell us a little bit about that. So it's funny. I've always considered myself an operator. You know, I've never actually started my own company with one very small exception that I ended up putting on the shelf after a few months for another opportunity. I have worked with entrepreneurs my entire career, though. I started in my early career at Microsoft working in innovation groups, helping create startups, fund externally, internally, et cetera. So more of an intrapreneur. Yeah, I think that's a good word. Hell yeah. I love that. Wow. Um, My question's just changed. (laughs) Uh, Who is is this, Alex? Who is this guy? Who is this? Start me out. Yeah. I mean, tell us about young Alex. Like, did you always geek out with with technology, or was it companies and creators that sort of attracted you as a as a young child? Yeah, you know, I really started out in tech. I was a computer science major in college. I, I started in technology as an IT manager at a major university, and it was it was a lot of fun. Ends up, I'm a really bad software developer. Um, you just find these things out when you work with really great people, right? And I got really attracted to the business side. I started, you know, moving into management very, very young. At the age of 19, I had a staff of dozens. and By 21, it was a couple hundred people. Um, and so I just found I really loved the business side. I thought a lot more about my budgets than I did about my architecture. And that really led me towards the sort of innovation side. I was always somebody who liked to break things as a technologist, but I was also just far more interested in the business side. And that really led me down my career path. I moved from working in the university world to working at Microsoft, first in an academic role, and then eventually in the innovations team. I ended up Microsoft working on the Gates team, where, I mean, that sounds great and everything, but, you know, you're, you're on the fringe. We'll name drop, too. Just watch it, right? <laughs> Alex, do you like managing? I do, actually. I enjoy running companies. I enjoy managing people, building teams, like building a product, um, but also the, the company that can deliver that and deliver on one sort of thing. I enjoy that, that a lot. That must be terrifying because, you know, if you've got like a bunch of technologists and scientists, you know, working for you, like they might give you an answer like, well, we can't do that because of physics and X, Y, Z. And you can call it bullshit because you've got the sort of technology underpinning, but yet with the business lens. So I'd be terrified to work for Alex. Can't <laughs> fake it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, So, Alex, I want to talk a little bit about your day job here. So tell us about GBI and how did you get into precious metals? I know, of all things, (laughs) I I sell shiny yellow metals. Um, I never thought I'd get there, starting in technology. 
Um, but it's interesting. We're really a, we're a fintech company. GBI was founded, Gold Bullion International is what it stood for. It was founded by a couple of folks who left Goldman Sachs and the, the more traditional world of investment banking, trying to take what was an old-fashioned asset, really the world's oldest asset, right, um, and turn it into something modern, right? Make it tradable, make it available in the modern digital world of investing. They've been very successful at that. I mean, our systems connect into uh, like two out of three of the world's largest wealth managers. Um, we have business across the U.S., across Europe, across Asia. It's, it's, it's really GBI is a fintech company that makes something that's very manual available in a digital system. Wealth manager sort of anywhere in the world can queue a QSIP into a system, hit a button, and a bar of gold is bought on an agency model exchange. It's shipped to a vault in Zurich or New York or Singapore or wherever, sat on the shelf. It's available for the customer to take delivery. It's liquid. And that is an interesting technological problem because there's a lot of things in the world that are actually what we would call bearer instruments. Gold, cryptocurrencies, which we've expanded in, into over the last couple of years, other alternatives. There's, there's a real opportunity to, if you will, digitize financial assets that got left behind when stocks and bonds sort of took everything over. And that's what we do. We focus on making alternatives available in the financial system from edge to edge. So whether you run a, a hedge fund or an ETF or a wealth manager or just a retailer who wants to sell gold or cryptos, we provide the technological glue to make that easy to happen in your legacy systems. Hmm. And when, when did GBI start? GBI was founded about 13 years ago. Okay. I actually joined the company uh, about five and a half years ago uh, through an acquisition. Very cool. And And so you said you're getting into crypto. So I'm curious on how that has impacted the rest of the business. Is it is that becoming a much larger sort of piece as as we kind of move towards that? It's certainly been faster growing than precious metals. Yeah. Um, it's been a couple of years now. We've been in the crypto business for, I think, about three and a half years now. It's a pretty uh, substantive part of what we do. Um, so it's, a, it's not a rounding error, but, it, you know, gold still is the, the center of our business. We see that just continuing to shift over time. Um, you know, crypto has been a, a fast-growing market. Understand that we're we're building the rails, but we don't have a position, right? That's the whole part of GBI. We don't, like, own cryptocurrencies. You're not have, speculating per exactly. se, right? Si- similar to gold, right? We don't hold inventory. We run agency model exchanges and enable other people to sort of access that liquidity. Cool. Do you own any NFTs? <laughs> Personally, do, no. Do you have any, uh, you know, art collection wallet out there? No, so. no, I haven't dipped my toe into the NFTs. And if my balance of Solana and Cardano is any indication, I probably won't have the capital right now to do that. All right. I'm going long Algo <laughs> just because of Zestbloom, our, our company. So um, I've always respected your sort of um, lens for evaluating investment opportunities, either for the businesses you're involved in or in your capacity as a as a mentor and as a colleague around some of the VSET companies and others in our community. So what do you, what do you look for? Um, you know, when you sort of see this angel investment situation, are there things that keep popping up that get you excited? Um, it's interesting, you know, as an operator, I find myself spending a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs about sort of how to understand their P&L. That's always the angle I come at, right? A lot of people come with this great idea for a product, 
but they don't necessarily know whether it's a great idea for a business, right? And so I'm constantly focused on creating new businesses at GBI. That's a big part of what I do, finding new areas to break into. You know, is, can we, can, if what we're selling to wealth management, can we do it in retail? Can we take what we're doing in gold and do it with cryptocurrency? You take cryptocurrency and bring it to real estate. And so we constantly have to ask that question, right? How much is it going to cost? What's our fixed cost? What's our variable cost? What's, you know, what does SG&A look like? You know, what, what, what is it going to cost to sort of staff this business? And what's the recurring revenue going to look like short-term, mid-term, long-term? And I'm always sort of emphasizing the same thing to entrepreneurs I work with and I advise, which is you have to understand the business model in a pro forma as much as you have to understand and be sort of your product, right? You have to be evangelist for your your whole revenue model too and really get it and understand it. That's the, always the thing I've focused on. And so what I get excited about is when I meet an entrepreneur who doesn't just have a great idea for a product, but who really gets the market fit and 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 the economics of that. Like, what, what, right. is that going to be recurring revenue? Is that going to be, how are you going to structure the business? That Those are the entrepreneurs I most like to work with because you can get really interesting ideas when you start to ask hard questions about those numbers. Yeah, we've always remarked that, you know, you want to like the team and like the shiny object they've invented, but you want to love the business model, right? Because it's got recurring revenue or uh, subscriptions, or there's three ways to get paid, right? Subscriptions, transactions, sponsorships, and, and whatnot. And gosh, if you can use your customer's money to do all that stuff, that's even better. So, uh, but you're right. It is a challenge to sort of pair those things and, and try to find the sweet spot. Any advice for entrepreneurs who maybe have a great product idea or, you know, you know, have their expertise in that side of things and, and don't know much about business on how to make sure that they're walking down a path that's going to be profitable? Yeah, I mean, the, the simplest advice is the one that I, I run into is ignored most often, yeah. which is do the modeling. Right. Like sit down with Excel. The, the number of times people don't even try to model the business for lack of it. There's a million books, a million PowerPoint presentations. You can go on Udemy or Coursera or whatever and find something that can show you how to do it. But if you're good enough to do that kind of technological product development, if you're a pharma scientist or a, a doctor or whatever, you can sit down with Excel and build out a pro forma and ask yourself really simple questions, which is how many customers can I sell this to, right? People don't, don't ask questions like they say, oh, I could sell this for a hundred bucks and I'll do two million customers. Like, oh wait, how many salespeople is that going to take? What's the infrastructure? What's the, you know, just sort of asking that question, going through that exercise, then find somebody who's been good at business, sit down with them. And sanity check yourself, right? But if you don't make that first stab, the straw man, it's really hard to have a productive conversation uh, with anybody about how the business works. Right. I, I mean, I always say to our students, like every number you put down like in a pitch presentation or that you share with someone, like, can you stomach it? Can you back it up? Can you give us a reason why you put that number down? And and that's kind of the simplest form, right? And if you can't, then you have some more work to do. Right, or yeah, don't or don't advice. use a lazy number like one percent of uh, China or two percent of the EU. Like, okay, that's super simple. Like, yeah, you know, oh, yeah. start Look, peeling, it's a, peeling it's a trillion into a dollar market. What if we got four percent of it? Then we'd be billionaires. Yeah. sure, but what's that really going to take? Right. Yeah, Sam, I, I did want to point out too that he dropped both Excel and PowerPoint 
So he's still a Microsoft guy. <laughs> like, like we won't let's not talk about Google or some of the other products out there. No, it's so. pretty clear who we got here. Hey, I'm, I'm a marketing guy, too. So I got <laughs> yeah. my, my G- Google Workspace or whatever they're calling it this month account. So um, you touched on on um, crypto and, and fintech. And I'd really like to have you sort of tell us what, what this thing called DeFi is, right? And, and where you see it sort of heading. Are, are the... Are we the banks in jeopardy? Like, uh, not in jeopardy from a, a run, but are they antiquated? Are they the buggy whips? It's interesting. I think the most interesting thing about cryptocurrencies in general is just, it's the only asset class where 95% of all the volumes are traded outside the U.S., right? The U.S. has had sort of a oligopoly or monopoly on international banking and finance for a very long time with, you know, some of Western Europe involved there, right? And while there are other big banking centers, it's still predominantly U.S. assets. That's changing, right? The market cap of every major uh, stock exchange in the world is growing, whether it's Africa or China, et cetera. There, There are, you know, huge new markets developing. And cryptocurrency is the first thing that really sort of goes across those boundaries. And it's been really hard for centralized financial institutions to adopt it, right? If you really look at cryptocurrency, you can't walk into your bank and add Bitcoin, or you can't really even call up Fidelity and add Bitcoin or the traditional places that you would use your money. So I think what it's created is is a phenomenal amount of wealth that's sitting inside of these non-traditional institutions. DeFi, it's another level on top of that, right? It asks the question, do we even need an institution? Do we need a company like Coinbase at the center of this? Is that, or is that just risk, right? Is it just can we create some institution that is in some respects self-governing or, or governed by a, a group of people? It, it's interesting. It's different. I, I don't know what the risks are, right? I, I look at a model like that and I ask myself my question, okay, but where, where do the voting li- rights lie? Is it actually more opaque? Uh, is a decentralized financial institution really answer to no regulator? Who can hold them accountable? I think it's going to be a really interesting run on, one, whether users are actually going to trust that kind of institution that really, you know, and, and, and how we create something that is both decentralized and transparent enough that it can be held accountable. Because DeFi is all about sort of getting rid of the, the central financial institution. And, and you know, that, that has its pluses, for sure. It, it does. And its minuses. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I think came out this week was sort of we trade one set of sort of knowns and control and institutional powers for this other not so transparent. But they were like, hey, 5% of the people own 95% of the tokens. So you're you're change you're are you swapping for a different group of robber barons? Yeah, right? and are that they are, are they good? You know, yeah. for, do you know the who they are? Good yeah, point. I mean, so, I can I can tell you who the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase is. I might not agree with everything he does or whether or not he's held accountable, but I, I can tell you who he is. But I can't tell you who's at the head of most of these DeFi institutions. That's an interesting point. A little dehumanizing, perhaps. <laughs> um, so. I mean, while we're sort of on that topic, I'd love to know what excites you most in fintech right now. What are you keeping your eye on that you're really psyched about? That's, that's a good question. I would say the thing that excites me most is the the consolidation, right? Mm. Like right now in fintech is a sort of, you know, you go one place for each thing that you want to do, right? If you want to invest in, you know, if you want, you want a checking account, you go to a bank. 
if you want to invest in stocks, you, you get an account with a discount brokerage. You can Fidelity, Robinhood, the whole the whole thing, right? There's, it's been a world that's sort of been very separate from each other. Um, and if you want to buy cryptos, what do you do? You go to Coinbase, you go to Equity Trust, you go to a company that sells these things separately. I think it's really interesting to watch the super apps. I think these financial sort of super apps that have been coming around and consolidating where in one interface you can presumably shop for insurance, buy stocks, get a loan, do all of that sort of together, I think is a really interesting trend. I, you don't, I don't know. Not every consolidation play in the world is, has worked, right? Yeah. But I think it's, uh, it opens up a lot of new opportunities uh, for financial technology companies to sort of provide a more you know, human, you use the word dehumanizing, a little yeah. more human experience. I don't think anybody I know likes going to the bank to send a wire or do whatever, you know, like I, everyone I know just wants to open an experience and be able to sort of control their own life and then have somebody available to help them who doesn't say, oh, that part's not my job. Right. And I, f- I feel like it makes it more approachable too, right? I mean, suddenly you have someone who maybe just has a checking and savings account trusting a bank or, or an institution that views forever offering these new services or products that they're kind of interested in. And and I think that trust goes a long way, especially in finance. It does. It does. And banks, to some extent, have sort of fallen behind there. I and mean, you can see, if you really look at credit unions, regional banks, they're, they've been losing business for years to the combination of, I can go get checking account features with my broker, right? And zero interest rate policies, which I think they all sort of assumed would go away after two years. Right. And now we're in 15, 20 years of this kind of world where, you know, honestly, what purpose does a sort of a regional bank serve for its customers? And so we work with a lot of those companies and we see them soul searching on how they become more to their customers, more like an advisor, more like a central hub. So just as the super apps are coming around in fintech, don't think that these regional banks, even a small regional bank, has hundreds of millions to billions of dollars of capital under management. Don't think that those companies aren't sort of sitting on the side and waiting. There's really interesting companies out there like Fusion IQ and stuff who are adding all new capabilities on top of those platforms that I think give these super apps a run for their money. Hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the banks still have their distribution, their retail presence, their relationships, they're in the communities. So uh, it's a lot of change for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, what What was your stint in academia all about? So that was, did we call you professor or doctor? I don't. Oh I, no! Forgive no. us, please, because I I just want to call you Alex. <laughs> Not at all. I was I was on the administrative side. I, I don't. I, I don't even. I never even finished my master's degree. Um, so no, I uh, I worked in academia on the technology side when I was young. Got it. I uh, worked as manager of IT services at Rutgers University, which you know I didn't appreciate at that time. It was a multi-billion-dollar-a-year institution, right? This was a pretty huge college, one of the largest and most diverse in the country. And uh, I worked, you know, implementing some of the first campus-wide uh, voice over IP telephony systems, first campus-wide Wi-Fi. Like, I was in the very early days cool. of, like, technology becoming center to the university. Worked with a lot of interesting researchers. Worked with the business department on, like, their first business plan competition. Worked on the startup of the tech transfer office. It was really at that really exciting time where, you know, academia and technology were sort of just one, and it was all starting to, to spin out. I mean, this is pre-dot-com bubble, right? right. So just to time it for you. Well, yeah, they're going through their own transition now, right, with with COVID and hybrid learning and synchronous and asynchronous. And Do you think that background in academia has helped you where you are now? 
Yeah, I, I think it has actually. It taught me the power of specialists. Like academia is like this one place where we really truly value people who become incredibly specialized and spend some time and effort trying to sort of guarantee those people a place, right? And, and, and you know, I love still blue sky research. I got to work a lot on that in academia. I got to work a lot on it in Microsoft where I spent a lot of time with the research group and the value that that brings to society in terms of, you know, everything from just scientific advancement and how it helps our lives to the creation of new businesses. I mean, I, I really have a big appreciation for academia, uh, but also the struggle of taking something from a concept to a product, right? Working in tech transfer, you know, both at Microsoft from R&D out and in academia from, from, you know, the professor who has a great idea for a product and, you know, having to explain, all right, that's a billion dollars in capital and 15 years to take that, say, pharmaceutical concept to market. And that, that can be an amazing challenge and amazing opportunity. And it's interesting to watch that process. It's, helped, it's informed my career a lot. Yeah, I, that, I love that idea of like specialists. And it is Amazing. You know, I think Dave and I work with a lot of UVM professors and one of the coolest things is you'll meet someone and and then you realize like you're the leading expert in the world in this very specific thing. And like coming from me, who's very much a soft skills kind of a gal, um, that's something that I have a deep appreciation for as well. And it's always great to have those people as mentors, right? Dave and I keep those people around <laughs> because we are not experts, surprisingly, I know, um, in, in Shocking. too many Shocking areas. Shocking we don't know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in society, like we have, a really, you know, we love books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad that are all sort of, you know, remember Poor Dad was a special and it was all about how his job's in jeopardy and how the business community doesn't appreciate that. And so the role that academia and government research and stuff plays in allowing people to get that much expert knowledge is just so important. Um, so you, you moved and lived in Puerto Rico for a number of years, and then you came back to Vermont. Why'd you go to Puerto Rico, and then why'd you leave? Well, my first reason was the beach. Okay. Well, that's good fine. answer. A good answer on the shortest <laughs> day of the year, right? I wouldn't have accepted anything else. It didn't hurt that they had a um, tax program down there that was very advantageous for someone like me, who at that time was really a consultant. Right? I was working with small companies and, and, and providing consulting services, and Puerto Rico provided a, a, a very, and still do, a very interesting tax incentive for people who live and work in Puerto Rico, but export services to elsewhere. Um, they have other tax It's always been a big thing, right? How do you, as an island with limited natural resources and a large population, how do you create an industrial base, a commercial base that is more than something like just tourism, right? And so for years, Puerto Rico has used tax incentives as a way to attract things like pharmaceutical manufacturing. You guys probably don't know, but that's actually a huge business there. Um, software. Microsoft has a large presence on Puerto Rico. And some that's sort of how I got to know about the tax programs originally. Um, and so, you know, I took the opportunity to move down in the early days of one of the new tax programs, the one that focused on services export, and be sort of one of the first people to take advantage of those programs and live there and work there. Um, I've since moved back. I live in Vermont for the last five years, but it was a, it was a great adventure. I loved it. And how does that compare with your observation on Vermont's tax climate as it either appeals to or prevents or discourages um, folks like yourself? Like, is there any contrast that you just, you know, when you look in the mirror in the morning, like, oh my gosh, if only we could do this. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think I summed it up really well. I asked, somebody asked me a couple of years ago, how was it 
Like, and I just said, one thing I learned is you get what you pay for, right? If you go somewhere that has really, really low taxes, those taxes can only buy so much in terms of social services, edu- like education, mental health, police, et cetera, right? Now, sure, there's that soft impact, right? Down in Puerto Rico, we were employing a lot of people as part of those grants. You have to have employees. Those people are paying payroll taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then to live in Vermont, which is frankly one of the highest state highest tax states in the union, it's quite a difference, right? But I'm here today because I love Vermont. I mean, I love, I love the, the environment. I love the services that are provided. I love the education. I have three kids in Vermont public schools. I couldn't be happier with it, to be frank. And so, you know, you do, you get what you invest back into your community. And, you know, I'm a reasonably substantial taxpayer in Vermont, but I wouldn't say I'm an unhappy one. So, um, you know, somebody said to me once about the Puerto Rico tax, a gentleman named Nick Prouty. He's a very good financial manager, excellent hedge fund manager, a very wealthy guy. And he said, um, taxes are an expense, not a cost. You only pay them because you made money. So relax. Right. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it and a lot easier to stomach, right? <laughs> Especially if your kids are getting a good education. And what brought you to Vermont? I mean, you're not from Vermont, are you? No, oh, I grew up in New Jersey. I lived in Seattle, brief stints in L.A., Puerto Rico. Um, I was, I'm an accidental Vermont resident. Yeah. I met a guy on a plane. I was working at Microsoft and became fast friends with a gentleman who had a business in Stowe, Vermont. He wanted to sort of retire and take the leisurely life and actually in Argentina where he remains today. Um, So I came in and sort of took over for him in the business, worked as a protege for him for years, became business partners. We actually started a few ventures together. Um, And he's he's living the good life in Argentina, and I ended up staying in Vermont because I loved the lifestyle here. It's really, you know, growing up in hectic and busy New Jersey, living in, you know, sitting in Seattle traffic for many, many, many years. This was uh, this was appealing. When the first time I came, I remember getting off the plane and sort of driving out the snow and being like, this is different. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, it, I love it, it that. Just stuck. I love that it was a serendipitous plane moment. That's so great. I'm trying to think if Dave could talk me into that sort of change, right? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he's convincing. Um, so mentoring. Let's just you meet. You have coffee with like more people than than I could ever dream to. You're like eager. You're curious. So. If, if there are others like you that wanted to get involved in helping in other companies, I guess I presume they're helping, um, what advice would you give sort of that first-time mentor-like, coach-like person um, in terms of expectations or how to approach a, a sit-down with, with an aspiring entrepreneur? It's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, patience is probably the number one. You know, you're, you're trying to coach somebody who is passionate about something through oftentimes doing it differently than they were trying to. I, I don't find that a lot of people seek mentorship until they've run into a roadblock. That's probably, would probably be smart for people to, to seek it a little more actively. I, I myself, I'm actually getting uh, executive coaching right now. I'm, I'm, I, my next meeting after this is interviewing at another potential executive coach candidate. I'm a big fan of sort of engage, feedback, early, often, consistently, even when you don't run into problems, um, even I'm bad at that, right? So I think what you have to understand is you're being brought in as a mentor. You're probably somebody facing 
the most difficult challenges of their life. The stress is high, the existential dread of sort of failure and have paying other people's paychecks and spending other people's money to try to bring something to life that, you know, you sit up at, at night with imposter syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think you, you really have to, if you're going to mentor, you just have to be able to be consistent and be patient that the change takes time. Like I think uh, it's, it's pretty easy to walk in there and sort of think of yourself as a consultant and that, you know, you know, here, you, this is what you should do. And then they're just going to adopt your plan. It doesn't work like that. Right? Different, different purpose and relationship, right? Very much so. I have a question for you, Alex, that just popped in my head. Um, is there, looking back on your career thus far, um, not a super traditional path? I feel like we don't hear from a lot of folks that kind of start in academia and then and then kind of go into, uh, you know, Microsoft and then precious metals, right? And so it's a pretty Moving unique... Moving bars of gold around, yeah. Yeah, unique path. Um, I'm just curious, is there anything like you would do differently if you were to kind of start over, let's say 18-year-old Alex, uh, you wake up as 18-year-old Alex. Is there any career move that you would do differently? <laughs> Not flunk out of college? No. <laughs> Actually, probably the best thing I ever did was flunk out of college. Um, the No, I, 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 to be honest, no. Um, I've been a very privileged, very lucky guy to, to just, you know, you know I, I don't want to overcredit my skill, right? But I have also been a tenacious guy. Like I have, you know, I, going to Microsoft was something. The first time I ever applied at Microsoft, they turned me down. And so I picked up the phone and I called the guy who turned me down. And I told him it was the biggest mistake he was ever going to make his entire life. So he changed his mind. And then they turned me down again because I failed a background check. And uh, ends up there's a person with my name in Texas who really doesn't like paying parking tickets. <laughs> but they were like, you know, we're not going to hire you because you didn't pass. And I'm like, you got to give me the name of that company and we're not going to tell you who did the background check we don't do that like i had to like you know i had to to argue and fight and claw my way into the opportunities like that um so you know in in the end i figured it out i got the job offer reinstated and it turned out really really well um and so what i'd say is like you know uh, no i wouldn't do anything different but i think the thing i'm most proud of is that i just never backed off a fight like whenever something was challenging and stuff i'm sort of the kind of person who gets up in the morning and thinks to myself all right this is going to be hard yeah I, I like that tenacity yeah i think grit is the word a lot of people use nowadays there's a great book by that name and uh yeah i mean you just got to stick with it and you got to kick butt and claw but honestly i'm really happy with where i am do you still believe in those serendipitous moments, like looking back on the the plane the plane ride that got you to move to Stowe? Like, do you think that's still like trust a trust your gut kind of moment is still worth? You know, I mean, I think there's a balance, right? Like, if you had just said, okay, well, they don't, Microsoft doesn't want me, then you know, you would have gone a different way. I'm just curious, like, how you balance those two things. There's this old adage I'm going to butcher, but something about like, you know, when opportunity knocks, you sort of have to be ready to open the door, right? And I, I think that's it, right? You know, just always be thinking creatively of like what could be better, what could be different. So the same, that's what entrepreneurship is, right? It's sort of like envisioning how the world could be better by the fit of this product or this business or this service. And and you got to do the same thing with your life, right? Like you can't be afraid to take a big risk because there's a change. Like, yeah, I mean, I walked away from not an inconsiderable amount of stock and other comforts of life at Microsoft to join in what was a six-person company in Stowe, Vermont, in an attic above an eye doctor's office. I it took was, it some, was a nice attic. 
No, it wasn't. It was heated. <laughs> well, you're a tall guy. You probably had to bend down. Yeah, no. I mean, it, you know, you sometimes you just have to, to, you know, see an opportunity and just ask yourself the question, like, could I make something of this? And uh, and take it. Don't be so afraid. I've never been a particularly risk-averse person, though. I mean, my wife would, would look at this conversation right now and just be like, you're not the kind of guy who worries, so, you know. Well, know. we have her coming in later this afternoon to sort of background check here a little bit. Right? Find out all about your parking tickets, no doubt, right? Um, okay. Sam, do you have another question before we do magic wand time here? I do have another question. Um, I just am curious, you know, you're, you're a remote worker technically, right? You're, you're deeply rooted in this community, but you're working for an out of state company. Um, from your perspective, is there anything that the Vermont business community could do better, um, to improve, to make it sort of friendlier or, um, you know, a better environment for young companies to start and scale in the state? That's an interesting question because I don't work for a company that's started here or really scaling here, though we have hired a considerable number of people in Vermont because it's a very highly educated population. It's got a lot of things that work great for, um, you know, businesses, especially tech businesses that want to grow. Um, You know, I think, you know, what could the state do differently? It'd probably leave the policy experts like you guys, to be frank. Um, What I can tell you is it's a great place to live, to work, to live this kind of lifestyle. I have been remote entirely for quite a few years because like even when I worked for a company in Stowe, we had to hire remote. We had to just to be able to survive. You had to be able to live as a decentralized company. You couldn't just have one office and bring everybody there and, and think to compete when you live in an environment like this. And so, you know, whether it was some, a large amount of my time at Microsoft was remote, time at, you know, Stowe was building a remote company. I work remote nowadays. I think there's a new era on us with COVID here where people can choose places where they want to live for their lifestyle, for affordability, for those kind of things, and still be just as effective, uh, you know, short of maybe some improvements in cell phone coverage and broadband. Uh, I think Vermont is actually a fantastic place to be a remote worker, a lot better than a lot of other places because the balance of quality of life and cost of living and and the community is, is, is just really spectacular. I've met so many entrepreneurs and so many remote workers here compared to other places where I've lived that were really company towns. Vermont isn't a company mm-hmm. town, and that's it's fantastic. How do you meet entrepreneurs? Uh Lunch. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I used, to, I used to pre-pandemic host just a, a lunch meetup. I'm a, I'm a sort of uh, you know, middle-of-the-day meal guy. And uh, I used to hold a meetup where I just said, hey, come. Like, I'm going to have lunch at this date and time. You know, 16, 20 people, you want to show up? Show up. And I find the kind of people who come to that are often, you know, extroverted and entrepreneurial and sort of self-selecting. Um, and, and to be frank, like, you know, you just talk. Talk to people. Right? You never know. You're going to run into entrepreneurs everywhere. And then I meet a lot here at VSET, obviously. I think well, I, I need to be a little bit more like Alex. I'm getting pretty inspired over here. Go for it. You should. Right? <laughs> you've got game too. Right? You've, Thanks, you've been doing this for a while. Um, turning into a Sam therapy session really quickly. So yeah, we, probably... we don't need that. <laughs> um, Alex, this has been great. Like One, just thank you for being a member here, being an employer in Vermont. Um, you do add something to this Petri dish of community that I think is is part of the magic that that people time and time again try to explain. And whether they're starting businesses or just in between or investors or students, it's really um, important. And I think that's how Vermont competes 
in the world and, and thrives, I hope. so. Thanks, and thanks for helping me be a part of it. Vsat's been very instrumental in, in sort of connecting with this community. It's a big part of why I'm really happy here. That's awesome. Well, Good we, to hear. We gave him our desk, right? <laughs> we, we did like, give him like, the best we desk were like, in the all right, house. He needs some sunlight. We, yeah. We're going to give him the desk. So, all right, magic wand time. So we ask everybody this magic wand question. You have superpowers, well, beyond what you showed us today. If you could change one thing in Vermont, what would you change? Oh man, all the all the roads would be sort of self-heating and ice themselves, maybe like de-ice themselves. Ooh, That'd be it. Like that Sign one. Me we up. did have someone want a traffic light on Spear Street, was it? That was their big wish. Yeah, I just light. I just don't want to ever have to shovel snow again, but I still want the snow to be around. You want Puerto oh, Rico pavement in Vermont, is what you're telling me. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Well, Alex Daly, thanks for sharing um, part of your background, your perspective, and and your experiences. We really appreciate. it. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. This has been Start Here, a podcast sharing the stories of active, aspiring, and accidental entrepreneurs. The series is supported by the Vermont Technology Council and Consolidated Communications. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to work.